0: to be by the fire.
1: Hey, how's it going? Welcome back to Tell You What the podcast, where we talk with songwriters and musicians about songwriting and musician things. This is our first episode in a while. I decided to take a breather, spend some time listening to and learning from others while the world spun madly on these past few months. Today's guest, Joy Ike, is one of those artists we can listen to and maybe learn a bit from. Joy is a wonderful musician. Her music is infused with passion and energy. She talks in this episode about how she considers music a vocation, something she's compelled to do uh, as a way to connect with people and spread the messages that her songs contain. Troy was a delight to talk with, so thoughtful and her commitment to her chosen vocation is undeniable. Troy was also generous enough to share some of her thoughts on the current events shaking our country, the Black Lives Matter movement, the George Floyd killing. She's written an extensive blog post on these topics that some of you might want to read, You can find it at her website, joyike.com. On that site, you can also find info on Joy's artist coaching service, Cultivators, which she talks a bit about at the end of our episode. Be sure to check out Joy's music. Her last album, Bigger Than Your Box, is a great listen. If we ever get out of this dang quarantine mess, check out her live show. I certainly look forward to doing that myself. So let's get to it. Here's our Tell You What discussion with joy i Okay, Joy Ike, welcome to Tell You What, the podcast. Thanks for joining us today.
2: Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here.
1: Um, but we're excited to have you. You are in what is now your home city of Philadelphia. Do I have that correct?
2: Yeah, I've been in Philly for, I guess, going on six years now, but I'm from okay. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Right.
1: And how's quarantine been treating you lately?
2: Oh, you know... <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's a loaded question. Yeah. I
2: know. All right. I feel like that's, uh, I, I always, uh, you know, I, I stop after three words. It's like, oh, you know, oh, yeah. you know what I mean. But <laughs> I've had a relatively good quarantine experience, if I'm being honest. Um, I'm a homebody. So when March and April, you know, when March came around, I was like, yes, I don't have to go anywhere. And now I have permission. So yeah. Right. Uh, you know first 3 months or so were great but um, i've kind of i'm kind of hovering in and out of the restless phase where i'm antsy to go somewhere antsy to travel somewhere and really miss especially right now every year my sister and a friend and i like to go to a different country just to get out and explore somewhere else and so did you
1: have a plan for this year that was dashed
2: no we didn't have a plan um we are very last minute people so we probably wouldn't have figured that out until like last month but uh, to be honest though i was supposed to be in um, france last month uh mm. for my first out of country tours my first international tour so honestly that might have been the trip of this of this year
1: right that's a big disappointment
2: yeah that was kind of a bummer um Yeah, I'm I'm hoping that those dates will be rescheduled next year, but we'll see.
1: And how do you feel about not performing in general? How badly are you missing that?
2: I go back and forth with that. Um, I typically uh, don't mind having a month where my calendar's pretty sparse. So if I'm doing a few shows in a month, that's great. If I have an off month where I'm not doing anything that's um that's wonderful too Uh, in general i don't mind not touring as rigorously as i was touring before you know some four or five years ago being on the road so much so i don't necessarily miss that but i do miss live shows and i've had two
1: performing live shows yeah yeah, just live
2: shows in general just for you know a live audience and so i've had two of those in the past few weeks and one was enjoyable, the other one was just weird. You know, they were worried about a crowd forming, so they didn't want to promote it. So it just kind of felt like it was counterproductive. <laughs>
1: yeah. I found that the the shows that I've been able to... A couple of them that I've have attended, with the audience so spread out, right, with the distancing, mm-hmm. I find it really... It, it's hard to get that interactive feeling. Yeah, right? yeah. Well... Let's travel back in time for a minute. Wouldn't that be nice if we could actually (laughs) do that for real? Um, Let's talk about your early music memories around your home, your community, um, uh, any early influences in your life musically. Sure.
2: I grew up in um, a a house where we listened to a lot of um, African um, spiritual music. Um, Mm -hmm. My parents uh, came here from Nigeria probably going on 45 years ago now, so my earliest memories are listening to a lot of uh, Nigerian praise music in the house. Uh, My parents, uh, my mom brought my grandmother over to the States when we were kids to help raise us um, while she was in medical school at the time, and so I just remember that uh, growing up felt, I felt like I was very much immersed in Nigerian culture Mm-hmm. And um, it's it's weird to, to think that now in some ways because I feel so Americanized and I you know I I was born and raised in the states but I always felt uh, very much like I was you know when I came home from school I was in a different country everything was just so other and so different than my school uh, an out of home experience uh, and so that 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 music I think um, and, and I couldn't even you know, tell you who the, the artists were, but that music, I think, is very formative for me okay. um, in, in terms of uh, the the type of sounds that I've really come to love now in my adult years and, and really in my playing and performing style and the things that I kind of gravitate to um, in performing um, and, and having a percussive uh, playing and performance style. Right. But, um, you know, with that soundtrack being the... the uh, being kind of being the wallpaper to my, my upbringing. I also remember taking piano lessons all of my childhood. Um, My first piano lesson must've been at age five or six and I played until, until high school was it. Um, And I, I, (laughs) I remember hating the piano, hating it. All the way through. Yeah, all the way through and, and really, um, I never enjoyed it but growing up we were we really learned to um we learned to play music and appreciate it for its discipline and not really for its enjoyment and so um playing the piano was never anything it was never something that I wanted to do uh even now um it's not something that I necessarily enjoy doing um but it's kind of the necessary evil for me I love singing I love songwriting and uh, and playing an instrument makes those other two things possible in my world. So and it's so, a tool. Yeah, so it's really a tool. And I hate to say that, especially um, you when know, I think of all those amazing musicians out there who are so so skilled and so, so talented at what they do. It's just never been a love or a passion for me. So I can go weeks upon weeks without even touching my piano. Um, but it's very uh, hard for me to go a day or two without journal- journaling, so I've always considered myself more of a writer okay. um, than a musician.
1: Were your parents musicians at all?
2: Um, not so much. My dad has always loved toying around on the piano and the guitar, but okay.
1: uh, has never been... But you have a sister really... who is a musician? Yeah, my
2: sister is. She's she's an amazing, talented pianist and an even more amazing and talented drummer, and so,
1: did she have the same relationship to the piano that you did?
2: No. In fact, when when I stopped playing the piano, when my brothers stopped playing the piano, she was the only one that kept going. Um, so she loved it. Um, she just has a knack. She you know she she picks up instruments and she can figure it out. And uh, so she's got that real special talent. And so for her, m- making music is a joy, yeah. and playing music is a joy.
1: So you left the piano behind when you were in high school.
2: Yeah, I was actually in marching band. I played the clarinet and I kind of gave my parents an excuse and, and I said, well, I can focus on the clarinet if I'm not playing two instruments. And so <laughs> they bought it.
1: <laughs> and how did you find your way back?
2: Uh, Wow, I was in college and I was very uh, frustrated. I think I was this frustrated writer that just couldn't figure out what I wanted to say. And... Uh, And somehow I knew subconsciously, maybe that if I uh, made myself return to the piano, that I would be able to say things that were were stuck. So uh, yeah, that's really kind of how I found my way back. I remember taking this intro to piano course in my senior year just to kind of relearn the basics. And you know, the whole my whole life we we had those the music books and reading notes and. All that, all that stuff, but I never. It was almost like in in one ear and out one ear. So as soon as I left the piano in eighth grade, it was like good. I don't have to ever think about that again. And when I picked <laughs> it back up, it was all like it was brand new to me, absolutely right. brand new. So and for me, I knew I was like, I want to write songs. So if I can just learn chords and figure out this whole one three five thing, I'll be okay. And that's how I started to relearn again.
1: And so were you singing all, uh, all this time as well, or did that kind of come about as a way to express the songs you were then writing?
2: Yeah, singing has been part of my life uh, since day one. I have these uh, blurry, fuzzy, foggy memories of going to uh, the nursing home near my uh, house growing up uh, with my dad and my sister and he my dad would take us every Saturday morning to sing to the, the people who live there, just as kind of a ministry. Right. And uh, and so singing was just always around, and even in youth group in, in my uh, middle school and high school years, I was singing um, with uh, other church kids, and it's always been there. and so I've always I've always loved singing. Um, but it took me a while to find my voice. I don't think I knew what I sounded like. I think I was I was singing what I thought I should sound like, singing how I thought I should sound like. Right. And uh, it it took a while, maybe three to five years of really uh, figuring out not just how I wanted to sound, but what I wanted to say and maybe marrying those two things together to figure out what my voice sounded like.
1: So when did you first start performing your own songs in public, let's say?
2: Hmm, Right out of college. Um, I graduated from college about 15 years ago. And, some, and so in some ways, I kind of still consider myself a baby <laughs> <laughs> uh, with, with making music. But um, I remember my first year out of college, I was just like, okay, Joy, you can do this. Um, give it a try all the time in the world and you have nothing, to, nothing holding you back now. And uh, there was this one coffee shop on campus that, um, that I used to go to just to study and uh i reached I, I stopped in one day and i said hey would it be okay if i did a concert here um this was this was after graduating um but i don't know if if, if they knew me or if i just if, if it was a familiar space so it just made sense to start there right and uh yeah so that was my first show my sister we we w- we went to the same university and so she was um she was still on campus uh she's a couple years younger than me and so um, I went to Guitar Center and I brought, I bought her a, a djembe, because I knew I was right. too nervous to uh, play on my own, and she had always had a knack for drumming, so I said, hey, I, I got this show, and I really don't want to do the show on my own uh if i get you this drum will you drum with me and and she said yeah and and the rest is history <laughs>
1: that's great bribery started the whole thing uh,
2: yeah and she still <laughs> thinks it's her drum but it's it's totally mine
1: <laughs> so you talked about writing as as your outlet for that time before you went back to the piano were you um writing poetry as well because a lot of your lyrics have kind of a poetic quality so has poetry been? another outlet for you?
2: You know, it hasn't been, but in the past few weeks uh, during this quarantine, I've really been asking myself, okay, what do I want to make next? And I keep the, the word spoken word album keeps coming, coming to me. And so right. I feel like I need to explore that or give it a chance and see what that looks like. But I love poetry. I love spoken word. I love performance poetry.
1: Yeah. You publish the lyrics to your last album on your website and just reading through those. I mean, that's, they come across so well just as poetry so mm-hmm. i think i think you're on to something here
2: sometimes in in live shows i'll speak the words instead of singing them mm-hmm. um mid song and then there's this one specific song that i read the song out before i play it because the words come pretty fast yeah. um within the within the performance of the song. So and i'm like i don't want you guys to miss this i want you to hear what what um you know what the song is about and so I end up just reciting it so yeah there's something about poetry that I think I want to explore
1: right that's great um, can you talk a bit about your creative process in terms of songwriting are you sitting down with a pad and a pencil are you at the piano do you mm-hmm. like a lot certain time in your day for writing
2: yeah it's um it's it's a weird back and forth that. In some ways, it feels like I haven't found a a concrete routine. In fact, I think it maybe goes through seasons. Like when I feel like something's marinating, uh, maybe it's like an overarching theme of of like the year or whatever. Right. Then, um, you know, things are coming up at one time, and especially for my last album, "Bigger Than Your Box." Um, I kind of had this concept and I had some songs written and some that had pieces and things like that. So, that whole season and, and the year as I was kind of pulling everything together for that project, um, I remember going to my piano every day and just kind of hunkering down and just being like, okay, I have to give birth to this. Um, but whenever, uh, whenever any, any song or piece of a song isn't really um, attached to a project, it's really kind of, uh, it's kind of an inspiration when inspiration hits. That's when I jump on my piano or, or that's when I pull out the pad and and jot down notes here and there. And so actually, um, this last, uh, month or so, I've been doing a lot of random jotting, jotting down, um, about trauma, um, as it, uh, as it relates to so many things, but, uh, last, fall, I got this idea of writing an album about um, trauma um, in a uh, family context and how, um, you know, cycles are kind of repeated and um, reinvented and passed down. Uh, and it's, and I think it kind of like came off the tails of Bigger Than Your Box, where Bigger Than Your Box is all about breaking out of things that make you feel stuck and bound, things that right. you feel like have gotten the best of you. So it was very clear to me that this was like the next step. But then, you know, with this year and we're kind of experiencing this whole collective drama, uh, this whole collective trauma, um, I feel like I'm seeing the layers of that. And so I've just been like jotting down these ideas for songs um, that have to do with trauma um, on different levels. And so um, right now, at least for this uh, project, and I I don't know when it will materialize, but um, I feel like I'm kind of collecting the pieces um, and this might actually be the Spoken Word project. Who knows? But I'm collecting the pieces, and then it, I'll be able to kind of sift through and figure out. Okay, what is, what are the different songs uh, on this project about? Um, sometimes I have to make myself sit at a piano to make something, um, but I don't necessarily. So you like... would
1: sit there with no preconception of what you were going to do.
2: Yeah, I don't. I don't like to go to the piano. Um, just for fun, I like to be like, oh, that's a great idea. Let me go and see what that sounds like or what that looks like. Um, that doesn't happen enough. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if, if right now I just need to make myself create or if I need to just let it flow. Because in some ways, I feel like I could easily let myself get lazy if I don't um, just force myself to do it. And I'm not one of those people who likes to create just because like I can I like to create when there's something that's really kind of pushing me towards right. it
1: um, given the role you said that percussion plays in your music and in your background you talked about that a bit earlier and obviously it, it's evident in m- the most recent album How does that entering your creative phase do you hear the beats like maybe you would start with a beat and that would become something are they prominent in the early stage of the creation or is that those sounds kind of develop later
2: yeah um no it's like uh, sometimes i feel like drums are the thing that are driving the song (laughs) um right and i tell people this all the time like i hear drums even when there are no drums and uh, i i'm playing drums even when there are no drums doesn't (laughs) i know that doesn't really make sense but it's like they're always there for me whether it's me um snapping mid-song stomping my feet which i'm always stomping in a live performance Mm -hmm. um Maybe it's how my body is swaying. Like the rhythm is always there. Um, and so, so it's there
1: from the, from the early stages of the creation, you're, you're hearing rhythm.
2: Yeah, yeah. And sometimes yeah. that's what determines how, how the song um, finds its way.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. Um, you just did talk about performing live. Uh, you're kind of known for entertaining and engaging live performances. You already talked about a couple of ways that they might be different than some things other people might see what do you think is important to a live show what is it that you're trying to accomplish
2: hmm. I've always felt this um, even now more than ever I feel like there's an urgency um, and a need um, to encourage people and just build them up um, it's kind of this thread that has found itself in every one of my albums in some kind of way um, when I first started making music, um, especially in the first three to five years, I kept trying to figure out why I was making it. <laughs> um, you know, half the time it's because you you created something and you want people to hear it, you know, and that's really yep. all it is. Um, but that's that never uh, that never kept me going. like that never really fueled what I was doing because uh, again, going back to this whole thing of not feeling comfortable as a musician, I was always like petrified of the stage, and it wasn't until about I think 2017, three years ago, when I finally got past that. And wow. it's crazy to me to think that it took that long, but I kept trying to figure out, okay, Joy, why are you still doing this when you're when you don't enjoy it, but you still feel like it's a magnet and you have to do it. Right. Um, and I spend a lot of time like every once in a while um, and even in things that I, I write online I spend a lot a lot of time talking about calling and vocation and the things that we feel um, we feel pulled to and we feel like it, it's our purpose um, and I can't get away from um, I can't get away from music as a force for change and music as a way to um, lift up people And pull them out of um, stuckness. You know, I think about music um, like wholeheartedly as music therapy, like as a way to help people process what they're going through in life, um, see it through a different lens, maybe filter what they're going through, and um, understand um, life. At least that's what music has always been for me. When I think about artists that I enjoyed listening to. Um, in my younger years. And so I feel like a, I feel like a magnet towards that calling. Like I feel like when I go places, um, I want people to be like, yeah, I actually needed that music. It wasn't that I wanted that music. It wasn't that I just wanted a good night uh, or a good evening of, of live entertainment. but instead that music engaged me or engaged my spirit and helped me to see the world differently um or better or in a way that I wouldn't have seen it otherwise Uh, and I feel that more than anything in 2020 as I do live streams it's like songs that have been four or five six years old all of a sudden um, are taking on a whole new meaning and um you know I'll play a song and I'll have I'll see people post comments about like yeah that's really what I needed to get through today and um feel like more of like I have a better understanding of what I'm doing now as an artist Um, I just wish I could do it in front of live people
1: (laughs) yes and and getting that message or or, um, performing that vocation in a live performance is something different than just putting your recorded music out to the world
2: yeah for sure I I forget about people listening uh to my albums and you know listening to stuff on spotify <laughs> or itunes i i tend to not think that way because you know for as long as i've been playing and performing it's all about the next show and, and booking three to five months out you know and so this year is very different in that way because uh you know people are spending more time listening, um, not just in live streams, but in ordering music and just finding ways to support artists. And so for me, it's like, gosh, now I um, I ascribe more worth to all these other ways that people are um, staying tuned into what I'm doing and staying connected to the music and the message. And yeah. so, yeah.
1: This kind of leads right into the next question I had here that When you're performing your shows, it's either maybe solo or maybe you and your sister or a couple other people. But when you're in the studio, you have a a number of musicians with you, right? Mm -hmm. So when you are writing the song, are you thinking about performing it live as a solo act or maybe as a duo? Or are you thinking about the studio creation of that song? Or um, I guess what I'm asking is what is the essence? uh, How do you think of the essence of that song? Can it be multiple things at once?
2: Yeah, I think it can be multiple things at once, but I primarily I'm, I'm thinking, okay, how can I make this song translate well solo? Um, okay. And if it doesn't hold water solo, then I don't want to be hiding behind other instruments in order for it to work. Um, and I go back and forth between enjoying a solo performance and enjoying a, a band performance, or you know, just duo with my sister. Um, or f- it figuring out which one I enjoy more, I mean. But um, I want to make sure that the song can can have its personality by itself um, before I bring other instruments into the mix. Um, right. Yeah.
1: Um, let's talk about a couple of your songs, um, if we can. I'm going to start with the newest one first. You released a song called All the Time in the World recently. Yeah. Right? I want to say a couple of things about this one. First of all, this is a quarantine song, right? You recorded yeah. this during quarantine. <laughs> Did you find that you were connecting with people more during this time? Is that kind of where this, this idea came from?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I wrote the song two weeks into quarantine. So it's it was so new and that's when quarantine was still fun. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I think everybody well, was like, awesome,
0: I don't have to go to work.
1: <laughs> right, let's chat Which, on the phone.
0: <laughs>
2: I, and I, I also think it's probably why I ended up being somewhat of a, you know, cheesy pop song, super mm-hmm. kid-friendly-ish and stuff. Um, but,
1: you have yeah. The, you have the phone conversations edited in there, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um,
2: but, yeah, that's that was my reality. It was just like, oh, let me hit up this person and just be like, you know, what's new with you? And, too, it's like even people that I always talk to the conversations instead of being 20 or 30 minutes for like 2 or 3 hours instead so yeah. all of a sudden the world went into slow motion and, and it was like wow I've, I forgot that relationships matter more than my productivity And so that song was in some ways just like this fun reminder to you know say hi to people <laughs> yeah.
0: well but Monday feels like a Sunday I'm gonna talk to you We're not in the same place
1: Thing about that song, I must confess, I am a very, very amateur songwriter, mm-hmm. and I have tried a few times in the last few years to write a song with that title, mm-hmm. and I, it never seemed to want to come together. So, I just want to thank you for oh. doing this one so well. Taking the pressure off me. I cannot put this to bed.
2: <laughs> Someone wrote it for
1: you. <laughs> so, the song needed to get out there. That was the one. It wasn't the one I was writing. So uh, no. That's funny. So thanks. <laughs>
0: My
1: pleasure. Um, let's talk about the song uh, Hold On. I hear this as a song of hope uh, and encouragement. It has the, you are not your fear is that a prominent lyric, right?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, also, the album... The title of the album is from this song, "Bigger Than Your Box." Can you talk about this song a bit?
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, this song is is so important to me, um, and it was in writing this song that I was able to finish the album, and, or really start the album. A few songs had already been written for it, but once I wrote "Hold On," like all of the pieces came together, and I I realized how everything would tie together. Um, I wrote this for a family member of mine and, uh, three friends who, um, were either themselves going through difficult health situations or had someone in their family that was, uh, was dealing with something. And so, um, I kind of just wanted to write an anthem, uh, and something that would, um, help, help these people specifically and just anyone who's listening to the song, um, have courage and have hope at the end of the day and remember that the things that we're most afraid of, um, the things that scare us, um, are not, um, are not our identity and are not who we need to be. Um, and, uh, I, I was living with, uh, this particular family member at the time. Um, they were just dealing with a lot of depression and hopelessness and, Every time you entered the house, you just kind of felt it hovering like a cloud. Mm. Um, And there's a a reality, like when you're going through something that you don't understand and you have to kind of reshape your life around it, um, you don't, like, it's hard to see a window out, you know, and so as I, this is the only song I've played in every live stream I've done since March of this year. Um, but as i sing this song um, the song has a whole new life to it um, and i feel like it's hard to hope for a better future when the signs aren't pointing in that way and it's easy um, to give up and uh, to succumb to fear and so as i uh, as i share this song now uh, you know that's my that's my charge you know, to everyone as i sing it i'm just like man like you might not have a window out, you might actually just have a crack in the wall, and you have to kind of chip away at that crack and fight for that light to come in right. um, and fight for your hope. You know, it's easy when you're not, it's easy just to give up when you're not fighting, but you kind of have to fight in order to wake up every morning and feel like the day is worth living and, and worth doing. You know, and if, I, if I'm being honest, I think like. I've had it pretty good this year because I'm an introvert, you know, because I could hunker down for months and be completely okay, you know. Um, But there are people who are different, you know, close friends of mine who don't necessarily um, thrive off of being on their own, you know, and I have family living down the street from me, so it's like there is that small, uh, tight-knit community that I have in my neighborhood, but some people don't, and so you know, people are coming from all different places in this pandemic, and some people have lost someone to it. So, um, sometimes I'm just like, oh, well, this, this, this is easy for me to say, but it might not be easy for someone to hear. So mm-hmm. what, what does it look like to be on the hearing end of something? And what does it look like to be on the receiving end and, and, uh, actually believe the words that you're hearing? And so, Um, I don't know. I think people receive the song in different ways. But at the end of the day, I just want people to um, know that, you know, without hope, you know, that's it. You know, right. Might as well throw your hands up and call it, you know. And so you got to fight for it. You just have to.
1: This kind of goes to what you're saying about music. You're kind of discovering for you that music is a vocation and, and maybe these are the messages that you feel you need to bring to people.
2: Yeah, I, I feel like, I feel like I have to, like, it's, it's like, I have no choice. And I don't do it out of obligation. um, But it's just a huge part of me. And I, you know, I'll have people sometimes, you know, close friends will just be like, okay, you can stop now. Like, you could actually just (laughs) grieve with me and mourn with me in this thing instead of trying to, like, make me feel better and make me see, (laughs) see an alternative reality. And so, you know, I think there's a time for mourning, and there's a time for grieving and, and, you know, all that. Um, but I do, I just have this thing that compels me to, uh, find the window and find the way out. And I, I think that that's, that's how we move forward, no matter what it is we're going through. And, and so I do, I feel like an urgency to share that. And, you know, truthfully, it's like, there is, there's a lot of music out there. And when I started making music, I was just graduated from college. And I remember going to this open mic night, um, in uh in pittsburgh at the time and uh just thinking that like the artists were so talented like everyone was so good at what they were doing and i was like yeah this is where i need to be because i can really learn from the best in my city and figure out what it means to be a singer songwriter um but i always left feeling like really heavy-hearted and really um just really uh i don't know just uh sad all the time Hmm. and uh you know, the goal of my songwriting is not to make people feel happy because happiness is fleeting, right? But it's right. like if truth doesn't come with um, if truth doesn't come with beauty and hope, then I think like like even in maybe I'll give a more specific example. Everything with with all that's happening with George Floyd right now, like yep. truth when when truth lands, the the truth is that. Um, You know, it was murder and racism is evil, but we can't stop there. Like, we can't stop with racism is evil and cops aren't doing their job, or all cops aren't doing their job. We have to talk about both sides of it. So whenever you're talking about evil, you have to talk about good and beauty. And you have to talk about um, the things that redeem evil. Um, and bring hope to hopelessness, and so that's just kind of where I found myself landing as an artist. Where I can't stop at what's wrong with the world. I kind of have to look at the other side and be like, okay, well this is how we make what's wrong good. This is how this is how we make it better. Right.
0: You put up walls and someone pulls them down. You think for help, but they kick it to the ground. It's not what. You why but your hope is coming life takes all you got but your hope is coming
1: Okay, since you've gotten on to this topic, let's, let's go a little further. You recently wrote a lengthy blog post sharing some thoughts and reactions to the current moment right in the United States, the Black Lives Matter movement, George Floyd-related issues. I tell you, reading it had, had an impact on me, and I highly recommend to our listeners that they all take the time to read it. Um, I'm going to read a quick quote, if I may. You're talking here about the difference between knowing what is right and living and acting upon those principles you say quote we care only to the degree that it won't be an inconvenience or mess with our comfort or even worse with our narratives that is our problem um, mm-hmm. you also talk about you already hit on this a little bit referencing some of the writings of robin d'angelo who wrote white fragility how racism mm-hmm. is a system right that it's not individual behavior mm-hmm. so problems are not easily fixed with some maybe some well-intentioned acts right so I just invite you to talk more about this blog post uh, in any way that you're moved to.
2: Yeah, uh, there's so many uh, there's so many ways to go on that. i I really wrestled right. with that post. It took me several days to write, and um, several weeks after everything kind of exploded and, and uh, you know the posts on social media were were tough to read and there was a lot of anger and rightly so. Um, but I had to kind of step back and ask myself, okay everyone's angry Um, and anger is good because it you know shines a light on you know it helps people ask the question well why why are we why are we angry why are people angry but you kind of have to go a little bit further because if you if you stay with the anger then everything you do is kind of motivated from a place of kind of retaliation, you know, and there, there is righteous anger, but you can't stay, you can't stay there. Um, and when, when people are angry, you know, it kind of leads to, um, there's kind of like this power dynamic where if you're angry, then there's obviously someone that you're angry at. And now your job is to be angry at them, uh, shame them, make them feel terrible um, but that's what anger does, and you stop there. Um, and my sister always says this thing that condemnation paralyzes, but conviction mobilizes. So mm. if you're condemning people and telling them that they've done something wrong, shame on them, and that's where it stops, then nothing ever changes. But when you help people understand the why... Which is always the most important thing when you help people understand why they've done has gotten you to a place of anger and you allow um, that anger to be a passing uh, emotion and maybe even allow yourself to get to a place of grief um, where there's almost kind of like a, 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 I think there's like a humility in grief because you allow yourself to be vulnerable um, right. And so then you're, you're relating to someone, someone who's probably even wronged you. You're able to relate to them as a human and not treat them in the same way they've treated you. And so when you can get to a place where you're able to mobilize people and help them understand what they're doing and why they're doing it, then real change can actually happen. And so um, as I was writing that post, I was like, okay, well, there there are almost 10,000 people on my mailing list. I have to figure out what what my part is in this, uh, in this story and how I can help my followers understand what is actually going on. Because some of these people have been following me for 5, 10, some even for the whole 15 years now. And so because of however long they've been following me, I've earned their ears. And so I want to use that well. And so if someone's listening to me to what I have to say, I needed to choose my words well and make sure that whatever it is I'm explaining to them, I can explain it thoughtfully and help them understand. And nothing, nothing happens, nothing good happens unless there's a place of understanding. And so, um, you know, that was kind of really what what drove me to write that post. And um, I've had so many conversations uh, about it since, but um, I feel like right now is where is where and when we need to be talking, um, about moving forward, um, more than two months ago, because two, three months ago, everyone was like, well, you know, black lives matter. We need to talk about this. If you're angry, you need to post something, you know, and, and everything was very performative. And, um, the real question is like, what happens when, the news isn't covering it anymore. When, what happens when it's no longer trendy to say Black Lives Matter? How do you actually navigate your every, your everyday life, um, uh, living that reality? You know, whether it is whether you support the organization um, or not, it's the sentiment we're talking about. Right. And uh, yeah, so.
1: Uh, if I could follow up just a bit, I, I think it might be helpful to my listeners to hear you you did offer some specific, um, I don't want to say advice, but some things to think about for for your readers. And here's what you offered to your, let's say well-intentioned white friends. said ask yourself, ask yourselves why we do not have black friends truly in our lives and strive to address that. Allow ourselves to be uncomfortable in conversations about these issues to enter into these conversations without preconceptions instead have a willingness to be challenged.
2: I guess those were the, the first things that came to mind because, um, as I was silently watching social media, I think, you know, everybody wants to talk, but nobody wants to hear. Um, you know, people come to the conversation ready to say what they want to say, but not ready to listen. And sometimes it's like you, you, you are hearing, but you're not actually listening. And so um, I just think that I was, I was noticing that a lot. And um, sometimes I think we, we want to talk um, just to say that we said something without actually stepping back and doing the internal wrestling that, that's required to actually deal with the problem. Um, especially in a social media generation where we, th- we think that we've made a difference because we've posted something, um, whether it be about Black Lives Matter or whatever it might be. It could be anything. you know we kind of live in that uh, we live with that mindset now that if we posted something that it's going to affect change. And, and sometimes that start, that's, that starts it because conversation can lead to change just like I think I believe a song can lead to change but um there's a lot more it takes much more work and much more courage to um step back and not say anything and uh ask yourself how you feel about something and, and be ready to um be ready to face the truth that's th- that makes you uh that doesn't make you the hero you know yep. and I think that every we all want to be the hero and we all think that we're the hero um but we're not, you know, and and just like relation, how relationships go, we think that um, the other person was the wrong one, we're the right one, Right. Um, at least if you're me, <laughs>
1: so... No, I think that's fairly universal. Yeah,
2: yeah, so it's like, I don't know, I think like as a a, a country, that's been the huge wake-up call, you know, where, right. where people, some certain people thought they were the good guys, they're now realizing, oh, actually... No, I'm not. And I kind of have to come back to, everything comes back to relationship, everything does. And I had this meeting with this local community organization um, last week where someone said something, you know, quote unquote inflammatory on Facebook. And it wasn't very nice, but they said it and now other people in the organization are calling him a racist and calling that he'd be kicked out of the, the group. Um, And so there was a group meeting and we were all talking about how to move forward about it. And it was really interesting because it was, there were only two of us, um, two black people at that meeting. And we were the ones that were like, no, you know, you kicking people out doesn't change anything. You know, Mm. we can't consistently exist in a cancel culture where if someone says something we don't like, we get rid of them because that doesn't change right. anything. Um, but that's become our norm now in the country, um, and that it it kind of backfires and it kind of does the exact opposite of what it's supposed to do. Um, right. And it actually kind of creates this culture of fear where people don't know what to say, they don't know what they're allowed to say, they're afraid of making a mistake. You know, right. sometimes you know, Sometimes people say stuff that they shouldn't say and they might even say it intentionally um, but a, a lot of times people say things because they're ignorant maybe, maybe they're not even racist but they're ignorant and they don't know what they don't know and so the only thing that, um, that we can do is um, continue to be in relationship with people who think differently than we do because it's in that, it's in by doing that, that we actually um, show them a different way.
1: Um, that's great. I, I, I just want to thank you for writing that blog post, first of all, and, and taking the time to speak about it so thoughtfully here. I think you have some important things to say. Um, I will put a link to it up on, on our website so people can read it for themselves. I want to get back to the music for a second. I want to talk about the song Ever Stay. Ever um, Stay. This is a wonderful song. I'm really taken with the the changing tempos here as a hook. I hear it in a lot of your songs, but it really struck me here, kind of the dynamics and tempo and rhythm between the verses and the chorus. Can you talk about maybe the way this one came together?
2: Yeah. um, Wow, this song means, oh, I love this song. Um, (laughs) I I probably shouldn't say that, but...
1: (laughs) No, you're supposed to love your songs.
2: Yeah, Yeah, this song means so much to me. Yeah, it opens up bigger than your box. And it's um, a song from the Psalms, Psalm 23. Um, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow, shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And um, it is yet another song that has become even more important to me now than it was when I wrote it five years ago. And uh, I don't know, I just, I'm not sure what it is about tempo changes, but that's just always, it's always been a part of my songwriting process. I think I always pushed back against the, the um, e- equation for writing a perfect song. You know, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, chorus. <laughs> yep. Um, yep. I, I've always pushed back against that. It always made me angry. I've had so many songs that didn't have a bridge. Some, sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't work. But I just wanted to write what came. And I found that rhythm was what helped break songs up for me, if even if I wasn't following that, that pattern, um, the okay. pattern that makes a perfect pop song. So um, I think uh, because, uh, you know, I shared earlier that music um, doesn't necessarily come easy to me, and there's a lot of things um, that don't necessarily make sense to me from a music theory standpoint. However, rhythm and dynamics and building and Uh, pulling back and pushing and those kinds of things are um, what they've kind of been my tricks for songwriting and how I write um, and how I've made uh, music work for me um, from the writing perspective and so uh, that, uh, man, that song it needed that because it's all about talking about the mountaintop moments and then talking about the valleys uh, and so it's all right. about talking about the times that are great and the times that really suck and um, I, I spent a lot of time uh, on this trail near my house especially this year I'm just taking walks out there and uh, every time I'm playing this song I'm just thinking about walking through the woods and you know the curves and the the it's never it's never a straight path you're going always going up and down over tree stumps that are like sticking out of the ground and you know cross a bridge over you know pass a waterfall or whatever it is and so um, for me that song is really just about life and making it through and um, just going going through the motions of life and so that song the movement is so important in that song and the um, the rhythm is so important in that song and I think if if that song existed but without those things it wouldn't it wouldn't make sense.
1: Right. Well it really works so well.
0: Highest of height, deepest of death.
1: This song is an example, I believe, of how your spiritual life inhabits your creative life, right? I mean, yeah. can, can you talk about how your faith and your spiritual life are part of your art?
2: Yeah, um, for sure. I, um, I've, I grew up in a very devoutly Christian home, and um, growing up, I never really understood it. Like, I knew that that was what my parents, you know even coming from Nigerian culture, you know, if, if you're anything, you're devout, like no matter what it is you're doing, you just got to do it. You got to go, go all the way or just go home. And so, Uh and some, sometimes I just thought, okay, well, this is cultural. Um, and you know, I live here and so I need to kind of do this, but, um, it it wasn't until probably my twenties that I started really asking questions that you, you have to ask questions when you're, um, when you're wrestling with, like, who you are, what it is you believe, what your purpose is in life, and especially, um, around the passing of my brother, which I don't think we talked about, but that Mm. was what pushed me into making music full-time, um, back in 2008. And, um, he had passed away after battling cancer for four years. And, uh, yeah, I just asked a lot of questions, and it was just like I grew up, um, reading the Bible and, um, going to church all the time, but it was more out of a routine. Um, and it was just more of like, well, this is what we do, so we do it. Um, and also this idea of church being this thing that you do for two hours, you know, one day a week. Um, but I never understood that, you know, a, a relationship with God is not something you do. Um, and it, it's a lifestyle and it's it's part of who you are. And, um, you know, when everything else falls away, and you know your job's missing, and um, things aren't going as expected. In other words, when your when your life gets 2020, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and you don't have you don't have all those things that you fall back on for your security, it reminds you what's important, and so. Right. Um, and so that's kind of been my journey, especially these past 10 years. And I'm just like, wow, like none of these material things matter except for my relationship with God. And that has always been, it's always found itself in my songwriting process. Um, and I can't separate, I can't, um, I can't compartmentalize my life. Um, and so my faith finds, uh, shows up in everything, everything I do. And I think that's, right. I think that's the way it was always supposed to be.
1: Okay, won't you be my neighbor? Mm-hmm. The, the Mister Rogers song. You did a wonderful version of this. The video is an absolute delight. The children in it are so cute, and they seem so happy and excited to be part of this project. Can you talk about how this one came mm-hmm. about? But then, what the project and the song maybe mean to you, um, particularly in terms of like uh, the, how the sense of community uh, is a part of your musical life in Pittsburgh and now in Philadelphia.
2: Yeah. Oh, this, this music, this song and this video definitely have a sweet spot um, in my heart. Like I, I I started working on this song. I can't even believe it's, it was back in 2018. Um, I was just about to put out uh, Bigger Than Your Box and WQED, um, the PBS affiliate in Pittsburgh had reached out because they were doing this thing called sweater sessions and asking <laughs> artists from Pittsburgh to create their own version of the Mr. Rogers song or some, or, or write some kind of tribute to Mr. Rogers. Um,
1: he is a Pittsburgh. Yeah, he yeah. was from Pittsburgh. Yeah. He's from right.
2: Pittsburgh. So I, um, I started working on a version. I landed on the ukulele just cause, you know, I'm always playing the piano and it just seemed like it would be a fun ukulele song and it's all, it's gotta be about kids. And so that's ukuleles and kids. They just kind of make sense. And <laughs> I was thumbing around the song but didn't really finish it and you know there's not much to finish it's such a short song but didn't really give it much attention because I was so focused on releasing Bigger Than Your Box and touring it. And by the time I came back to it um, the communication had fallen off with WQED and and I remembered it in 2019 because uh, the the movie was just about to come out. It was a it was right. a few months before the movie release, and I was like, well, if I'm gonna release the song, I gotta release it now, um, just so it kind of gets a little more a little bit more momentum with the movie coming out, and so. Um, talked to some friends in Pittsburgh. I wanted everything to be done in Pittsburgh. Uh, We kind of cast some vision. Like, How can we make this simple because it's going to involve a lot of kids and that could get complicated? Um, And and how can we really give it the spirit of Mr. Rogers? And I just, uh, when I talk about him, I always talk about his peaceful presence. Like he's always... He always kind of gave off that fatherly, nurturing vibe, and um, I loved that about him. I wish I'd known, I'd ever, I'd met him or known him personally. I didn't, but um, I was like, well, that would that'd be really cool to kind of um, maybe approach the song from a different perspective. Because, well, my name is Joy, <laughs> and uh, right. you know, he brought a lot of joy into people's homes too. So I'm like, well, the song, this rendition is kind of upbeat, anyhow. So. You know, he covered the whole piece thing, so I'm gonna bring a little bit of uh, fun and like vibrance to this video and this song and the recording and just make it about kids being kids. And uh, so, yeah, the, the video was, uh, it's, it's probably the most fun I've ever had on a video project. And we just literally got kids <laughs> together and made crafts for about eight hours or so, got them dancing, and, and that was really it.
1: Yeah. Well, I gotta tell you, if joy was the vibe you're going for, it. You, you nailed it. <laughs> uh, it is, it's a great, it's a great watch, and uh, mm. uh, that's another thing I recommend listeners check out.
0: Well, it's a beautiful.
1: before I let you go. Mm -hmm. I understand that you now uh, have a business offering consulting or coaching service to artists. I want to give you a chance to talk about that if you want and maybe how folks can find out more about that.
2: Yeah. um, Early on in the pandemic, it's funny because it was actually the very beginning of March, I launched Cultivators, which is really um, coaching and consulting and helping artists to basically better understand um, who they are as artists, um, from the message to the branding, to connecting with their audience. Um, A friend of mine over the winter had uh, been pushing me to do this, and I I kept like dragging my feet on it, and I've been dragging my feet on it for years. um, But with my background in publicity, I've always uh, thought about what does it look like to, Promote what it is that you're making in a way that it doesn't feel commercialized, and in a way that it uh, still maintains its essence um, and holds on to its personality. Um, especially as independent artists, when you don't have the funding and you don't have um, you don't have all of the resources that someone who is backed by a label might have. Um, and I think also there's this kind of, there's this fine line and there's this needing to create balance between looking professional, but also Mm -hmm. still looking like you, um, where you don't come off as too shiny, um, because you, you want to, you want to be yourself. You don't want to be this version that you want people to think you are, but you want to actually be yourself. And so... Um, I had spent uh, about eight or nine years writing a blog called Grassrootsy for Independent Artists and, and helping them booking, uh, book tours, route tours, um, build their fan base, networking, all of those things. And so um, a little bit after that, I began writing for a website called Bandzoogle. And so I, I, I kind of always find like this um, branding, publicity, and artist coaching thing showing up in my life over the last, um, especially the last 10 years or so. So anyhow, I began formalizing everything in March. And, and then when the pandemic happened, uh, my friend was like, Joe, you have absolutely no excuse at this point. And so uh, I've been meeting with artists um, pretty regularly. So I do two things, one where I meet with artists one-on-one to help them work through whatever creative project they're working on, um, even if it's just getting a better idea on how to present it. And then I've also been doing um, artist group chats every three weeks or so, Um, and there's a a max of seven artists on each call. And it's this free group chat where artists can get together. We just get together on Zoom, and we're basically talking about any questions they have. Um, We've talked about everything from how do you now uh live as an artist in this time to how do you ask people to support you through kickstarter and patreon at a time when it feels weird to be asking anyone for support Um, and we kind of just cover the gamut but um for me it's just really fun to hear artists talk about what they're passionate about and also help them to shape that
1: that's great and and people can find out more about this on your website your music website Mm -hmm.
2: right yes
1: great All right, Joy, thanks so much. This was a great conversation. I really appreciate your taking the time.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, and I look forward to taking in one of your shows in person sometime soon. Oh, I can't wait for that day. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Joy. Okay, bye-bye.
0: When you do your So alive, what does it take to do it right? Even when there's no spotlight, to do what you say.